Blog Talk Radio. L-I-V-E presents The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, featuring your hosts, Heisey Lutmers and Charlie Harrington. And that will give you the chance to get into the queue for a reading. Uh, if you would like to find us on Facebook, you can do so easily. We welcome you there uh, to uh, like the page, to engage in conversation and questions, give in fact, about today that I would encourage you to listen so that I could be there in spirit and solidarity with the people that were out in the streets in Paris um, in response to all of the events in France last week. Um, so if you get a chance, check that out. Um, tonight, we have a couple of things. We will have our Living the Queer Life segment, which of course lets us look hard to just look and say, how can we uh, live the fullest and best possible in the coming month? And then, of course, we will have our segment for um, live readings following that. Um, but our guest, well, our guest, <laughs> I don't know if I dare say it that way, but um, we will be hearing an interview with Hyperion. Uh, and so in order to lead into that, I'm going to welcome and say hello to my co-host, Charlie Harrington. Well, hello there. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? Good. Sorry it took me so long to get in, but I am here now and ready for the show. Hopefully you had a good holiday. It was. New Year's has started off really well, and I, I like that January energy that everyone has. Uh, in my work life, in life with friends, this is the sort of time where um, people are ready to do new things, try new things, and a lot of it will stick. So, well, how about good. you? How was your 2015 ringing in? <laughs> uh, it was very nice. We went away with 
four or five other people for a few days. Uh, stayed up at a friend's house in the Guerneville Russian River area, which is a little bit north of San Francisco for non-Californians. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it was it was very enjoyable, very relaxing, and very cold. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I say that with. California relativity, of course, but for us it was <laughs> freezing cold. Um, but it was a very nice way to usher in the new year. What were you doing so my on advice New Year's to any, Day? Well, uh, which is a gathering of friends, and my my advice to any tarot reader, I think a lot of you already know this, is uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, don't have your cards with you, <laughs> or else you spend <laughs> the entire time doing readings for people. So this year I forgot my card. So oh no, forgot him. Can't believe it. Oh well. Although you know that there there is a tradition in in a number of different cultures that says that on New Year's Day you should only be doing what you want to be doing in the rest of the year, and so uh, a lot of times people will have cooked their meal for New Year's Day the day before so that they're not cooking on that day. So their year isn't all about just having to cook, or you know whatever it is. So. I don't know if it'd be such oh, a bad thing following that tradition um, there we go. <laughs> to, to have the tarot cards with you because doing readings on New Year's Day, that might be something that you would like to be doing throughout the year. Yeah. I, I like reading people. I like reading people parties, but New Year's reading. You're going to read for every guest. So it depends on how many people are there. <laughs> so that's my advice. Don't follow it. <laughs> but, you know. All right. <laughs> uh, so for this episode, we our first Remember the Golden Girl? I see every once in a while they would do a recap show and they they would all have little memories. They would show videos or clips either from uh, past episodes or they would just sort of shot shoot new stuff as if it happened in the past. So this yeah, is our, our first Golden Girls recap show. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or nowadays on Dancing with the Stars they do that except it's every week. They'll have an hour oh, show God. to recap last week before the pre- the new episode of this week. And you're like, really? <laughs> like we can't remember? <laughs> we have to do that. <laughs> uh, so would you like to say why it is that you're mentioning that? Well, um, this is the anniversary or about the anniversary of Hyperion's uh, death. He was Hyperion was a spiritual teacher in several traditions, but uh, one of them, um, one that he created was the unnamed path, which was a spiritual uh, and magical tradition for men who love men. And um, Hyperion had a great podcast that he recorded about the unnamed path. And one of the uh, parts of the unnamed path, there's sort of four main parts, is um, prophecy and divination. So it would probably probably be of interest to uh, listeners uh, of our podcast. But a year ago, Hyperion was taken from us very suddenly. And I know the unnamed path tradition still remains. And uh, they've sort of taken a year to discover who they are, you know, when their leader is now a saint rather than uh, a human who is, helping them and guiding them and creating material and planning conventions. So um, in honor of that, we thought we would replay our episode with Hyperion where he talks about his take on prophecy and divination. Yes. And and there are some other 
aspects to the path as well, some four main tenants, but that was the one that we focused on in this particular interview. And and this interview is from just uh, about two and a half or three months before he suddenly died, which affected many people. He had uh, certainly uh, worked with and touched many people, and it was quite the surprise. I mean, it was only, I think, in his very late 30s. Late, late very 30s. Late, late 30s, yes. Like 38, Which, 39 or something like that. Yes, um, and that's too young. <laughs> but it is true. In my 30s. And, it, and so, it was a complete um, surprise because it's not like yes. he had a long illness or anything. Something just happened no. on that one day. He went to the hospital and poof, that was it. And I remember it was on a Tuesday because we had our show and I found out from you live on yes. the air, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like I find out so as like, I'm like hey. logging to Facebook right before we were on and I'm like, oh no, this, this oh man. Yes. So, but, but you know, the, the, I know that the people in the tradition are carrying on. Um, you will hear in this interview uh, a mention about a retreat, the first retreat that they were planning called Stone and Stang, uh, and the um, people still in the tradition uh, had a, another retreat last fall, the second one. So they are carrying on. They had to kind of take some time to regroup and figure out because the unnamed path was a relatively newish tradition um, from and you know, just been around for uh, a few years. So they were just getting their feet wet. And fortunately, at least it had been around long enough. There had been a number of people initiated into the tradition, so that at least there was a little foundation there to to fall back onto and be able to carry it on. So. Uh, so we thought, and they're also, uh, the family and, and friends were having a memorial. I think it was yesterday. Um, the 12th is actually the day that he died, which was yesterday. Um, and they were having a memorial down in Southern California where he lived uh, and where his mother still lives and his partner still lives. Uh, and um, so we thought we would replay this both in uh memory on the anniversary of the death as well as in conjunction with that just as to to be there in spirit and to do something with them since we weren't able to be in Southern California. Um, and, and that there's still much knowledge and wisdom and information to gain from hearing this interview. So it won't be old information or that kind of thing. There's a lot that you'll be able to still um, take with you and, and will be very applicable. So that's why we thought it would be nice to replay it. So having said that, I think that we will go ahead and let the interview play, shall we, Charlie? We shall. All right. So welcome to the show, Hyperion. Thank you very much for joining Charlie and myself this evening. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure as always. Uh, really a big fan of your show. And of course, it's nice to hear both of you again. It's been a while. <laughs> right on. And as you, um, as we heard in the intro, uh, one of the things that you are primarily known for is having started the tradition, The Unnamed Path, which is specifically geared towards men who love men. And maybe you can tell us a little bit both about the path as well as what the impetus was to start a tradition that had that specific of a focus. Okay. Well, the Unnamed Path is a emerging shamanic tradition for men who love men, consisting of four primary parts, magic and prophecy, shamanism, 
death walking, and energy healing. And these four parts, these four arts, are based off of the natural magical talents that we, as men who love men, have. Uh, the unnamed path is not coven-structured or group-structured like many Wiccan traditions, <clears throat> but it is a little more like a, uh, a loose confederacy of independent shamans. We're all formally trained, we're all formally initiated, and uh, when needed, we come together, we band together to work on uh, big goals, for example, big social um, social needs, or uh, for example, with the, the whole Prop 8 um, situation in California with gay marriage, we banded together to work proactively to try to change things. Um, so in that respect, we, we're sort of a tribe, and uh, we are actually located all over the U.S. We have uh, initiated brothers in Texas. Uh, we've got some brothers in New York now, uh, up in the Bay Area of California, of course, Southern California, and our numbers are growing every day. And one of the things that really inspired me, or rather I should say one of the reasons why I was directed to create this tradition, because I was directed by my guides um, and the ancestors to go forward with it, is that I was raised in um, a Catholic household and once I realized that I was a gay man, I quickly left Catholicism and, and sort of went on a spiritual walkabout trying to find my path and eventually ended up in neo-paganism and Wicca. And I practiced Wicca for many, many, many years. And while I did find acceptance in the Wiccan groups that I belonged to, it was very hard to find a tradition that was uniquely celebrating mysteries of men who love men, the queer mysteries, mysteries for um, gay people. Okay, uh, We were certainly loved and accepted, and they certainly liked all the cool robes that we could sew and altars that we could make. But there was nothing there reflecting my unique spirit in the gods and goddesses that we worked with. You know, it was always that the god and the goddess were consorts to one another, and they gave birth to a baby, and that baby was the next god for the next year. And, you know, that kind of very heterocentric understanding of spirituality. And it never resonated with my true nature and my manner of loving. So I started searching and seeking. And I learned shamanism from a friend of mine, uh, sort of a neo-shamanic uh, technique that uses uh, music in order to induce trance. He had learned from Shumash Indians and from Peyote Indians. Um, and so I kind of like inherited that uh, neo-shamanic neo approach to spirituality and started seeking out information on my own. And at first, the Unnamed Path was a patchwork of information, uh, magical techniques here, gods and goddesses that I would meet there, ancestors that I would meet. It, it was sort of a hodgepodge. And I had a hard time trying to record it all and try to keep this web of associations in written form. Um, so I decided to start podcasting on the revelations that I was receiving and on the information that I was accumulating. And that's how the podcast of the unnamed path was born. And eventually my guides and the ancestors said, okay, it's time to teach people in person. And that was about, I want to say about six years ago. And uh, now we're a growing tradition and initiating and training new brothers every day. And uh, one of the things I really appreciated at the, uh, as a Wiccan, as a practicing Wiccan, uh, at the core of the unnamed path, you have the, the dark god and the light god and their interaction. And I found that so refreshing. Uh, you mentioned earlier, just a moment ago, like, uh, people embracing gay men, sort of, kind of. Um, but the, the way they would do it would sometimes be funny. Like, you know, everyone has the god and goddess within themselves. So... You know, it's okay, gay person. You can, you just have to get in touch with your inner heterosexual couple, right. and that doesn't exist in 
as such in the, in the uh, unnamed path tradition. Can you talk a little bit about how those two manifest? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because one of the common sort of magical justifications you, you'll find within many neo-pagan groups is that there have to be men and women present and that is to reflect the polarity of gender so that uh, there's always a priest, there's always a priestess, and regardless of whatever sexual orientation you are, as long as both bits are represented in the circle, we can do what we need to do because polarity, you know. And then I, I hear a lot of um, queer people that are still participating in those groups say, oh, well, I just need to tune my own inner polarity to the opposite of my partner. And so they're still operating in this sort of heterocentrist model of there must be a plus and a minus. There must be, you know, a, a guy and a girl. And we sort of turned that on its head with uh, when we met the, the gods of the unnamed path. The light god and the dark god are actually one god. They're actually the same guy. Okay, he's just in two different states of being, or rather, two states of his uh, of his awareness. Okay, the light god is very upperworldly, very um, cerebral, intellectual, logical. He encourages us to learn to go with the flow on things and abdicate our own egos and our own individual needs to understand to flow with the grand pattern of destiny. And so he has sort of this big perspective understanding on what existence is like. And actually we say that the light God is actually the elder of the two gods. He, uh, he was the one that created, um, created animals, created humanity, created, uh, living things in the world. Um, Eventually, at some point, he wanted to experience what it was like to be the very thing he was creating. And so he made a sacrifice. He gave up all of the light that he had. He gave up this celestial, amazing, upperworldly experience to throw himself down into the creation and be like the very beasts he had created. And thus was born the Dark God. And so the Dark God is very bestial and is very um, physical and sexual and very self-serving and self-indulgent. For all the selflessness of the Light God, the Dark God is just as self-indulgent. And so we get, you know, he sort of changed and transformed his being um, so that he could experience what it was like to be disconnected from things, to be an individual, to be unique, to be um, on your own and struggling. I mean, he experienced fear for the first time, you know. And so in that experience of the dark God, he had to learn how to get along in this world. He took pity upon the souls of humanity and um, tends to them and takes care of them in the underworld. When we die, he sets a feast for us at a table so that we always have wine to drink and we always have food to eat. And he, he, he saw the um, solitude and the almost um, how, the, how the dead had been forgotten. He saw their loneliness within himself. And so that sympathy kicked in and he started caring for them. And it's almost like we as individual unique humans are little agents for the grand experiment that the dark God is going through to experience what it's like to be a human, to be a person, to be an individual. And with each accomplishment that we um, attain, with each goal that we meet, we are justifying that that act of the dark god to give up everything that he gave up when he was the light god. And with each little accomplishment we make, the dark god gets lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. Okay, He makes his way back up to the upper world. Now, there's an interesting thing here, of course. Any good religion has to have um, a seemingly unreconcilable paradox. 
So here we have the light god in the upper world and the dark god in the underworld at the same time. Okay? If you can resolve that in your mind, I want you to try to. They see themselves in the other. You know, so he's, the dark god sees himself in the light god reflected back at him, and the light god looks down at creation and sees the dark god reflected back at him, and they crave and yearn for one another. And the light god and dark god have a queer loving relationship with one another. They are lovers. Even though they are one and the same, they are lovers. And they meet on the surface of the earth and make love with one another, just as we make love as men who love men with our brothers. And when they do make love, the light god transforms into the dark god and descends to the underworld. And the dark god is redeemed for his uh, sacrifice and transforms into become the light god and returns to the upper world. So there's this, this constant going back and forth between the light god and the dark god and the ecstasy of their um, sexual connection and bliss and shared love on the surface of the earth is what makes them transform and transmute into one another. And the beauty of that is <clears throat> we as men who love men can finally see ourselves reflected in our gods, right? We know what it's like to take our lover in our arms and see ourselves reflected in him and experience the amazing, powerful healing transmuta transmutational power of sex, especially when it's sacred and when it's engaged with an open, loving heart. And we can, we can tap into that divine current in the manner with which we make love. So suddenly the gods are reflected in us and we are reflected in the gods instead of us having to, you know, slap on a spiritual adapter to try to fit into an outlet that we don't belong in. And you also don't neglect the female side because you do oh, also have the yeah. light goddess and the dark goddess, correct? Correct, correct. The light goddess and the dark goddess are the other two deities in our tradition. And I should I should kind of preface going into the goddesses by explaining that we don't put a particular cultural lens on any of our gods or goddesses. So it's not like we're saying, oh, we worship Hecate and we you know go with a, a Hellenic uh, lens on all of our gods and goddesses. No, not at all. We think of our gods and goddesses as something that almost predates culture. Okay, it's it's as old as the men loving men experience. Okay, not the label of gay because the label of gay is a political label that's relatively new, but the experience of a man loving another man. That's how old these gods are. Okay, so the goddesses for us are almost like the field of nature. The dark goddess is the. Um, the void, the nothingness, the, the origin point at the, at the center. You know when you do geometry and you lay out your little graph? She's that origin point at the very center, right? No dimension, but there's a place, there's a space, there's a something. She is what existed before um, time and space exists. She is all potentiality. And then she, in an effort to experience change, to be able to, to break away from this, this void of just sort of non-existing, created herself she recreated herself almost like madonna she recreated herself into the light goddess and she the potentiality of the dark goddess became manifested into the light goddess and we say the light goddess is all tangible manifestation in the universe all the stars all the planets every rock every leaf every ocean every breeze that is the light goddess right but underneath that and between that matter there is space there's vacuum, there's nothingness, there's darkness. That is the dark goddess. She's always present and she underlies everything. And without her, the light goddess wouldn't exist. Space, excuse me, um, manifestation, tangible matter wouldn't exist without space. 
And so in many ways we say the light goddess is the stars in the heavens and the dark goddess is the black space that embraces them and allows them to exist. So the, the goddesses are, are nature. They're, they're the field of nature and existence. And the drama of the, dark, of the dark and light god interacting with one another takes place in that field of the goddess's existence. I hope that makes sense. It does. It took me a while the first time, I think, to kind of like try and reconcile the four of them. But what made it easier for me was when I uh, started looking for stuff, because as a good pagan, you need to have stuff on your altar, <laughs> especially statues. And um, I know you mentioned that they're, uh, they, the deities exist outside of particular cultures, which is great because it was kind of easy to see parallels right. that were useful. Um, but uh, the dangerous. First one was like, Yes, like uh, well, yeah. that is true. Like I, well, I first I got hung up on okay Apollo and Pan, and then like well, but yes, but no, and I tried to stay away from that. And but the one I found the, almost the most useful or interesting for a while, you know, uh, was I was like hmm, this sort of looked like a pairing of Archangel Michael and Lucifer in certain very much so ways. Yeah. And I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, he used to be Catholic, that makes sense. And then, but I, I eventually landed on. Uh, uh, phosphorus and Hesperus because they've got that divine pairing and um, there's not too much about them so they're not there's not too much baggage but then after that I was like okay light God dark God I can just I can just deal right exactly and you know that's actually a very good point we've had students that came from other pagan paths maybe they they worked with Hellenic deities or they worked with um, Kemetic deities and so they 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 try to say well this is like that so I'm just gonna sort of you take this God and put him over here in this unnamed path context. And what ends up happening is, you know, we are a revelatory path. We, we work a lot in the shamanic realm and expect our students to meet our gods and goddesses and build relationships with them. Well, we got to make sure you're meeting the right people. And the only way we can do that is by listening to your account and listening to the symbols that you bring back from journey work, from uh, path workings and validate whether or not you're connecting to the right energy matrix. And we had people that connect to something very close and similar, and I'm sure it's valid, and I know it is, it, it's real, but it's not our current. So that's one of the, the, why I said it's dangerous, because you can actually end up connecting to the wrong current, and then that current eventually says, wait, why are you trying to use me this way? Why are you trying to work with me this way? This is not how I work. So it's, uh, it's an, interesting, an interesting challenge to get through being a revelatory path. And is when you say men who love men, is that specifically cisgendered men or is it anyone who identifies as male how do you handle that currently kind of a hot right. button topic right so that topic was all the way back to last year at pentheacon yeah it's um it's interesting we say men who love men meaning you have to identify as a man and you have to love men so that includes um that includes uh, gay men, that includes bisexual men, that includes men who were born in masculine bodies, as well as men who were born in feminine bodies. And I took this question to my tribe and said, at what point do we feel it's appropriate for a trans man to be able to participate in our path? Because we do have certain mysteries that are actually tied to the physical body that we have. And there's certain aspects that, for example, uh, if you were a man and you did not ejaculate, okay, if you were born a man and you did not ejaculate, you wouldn't be able to engage in those mysteries. Does that mean you can't follow the path? No, of course you can follow the path. Of course you can participate in it. You're just going to miss out on that little bit of fun, okay? But um, so we said, yeah, as long as the um, 
the trans man has gone sufficiently through his transition that he feels comfortable with uh, the gender and sex identity of being male and um, and feels that he has dealt enough with his own transitional issues that he's ready to take on the transition of a spiritual path, because we all know that is a lot of baggage to go through a spiritual path, um, that they're welcome. They're absolutely welcome to study with us, to practice with us, to join with us. Um, and as a matter of fact, we, we have an event taking place this weekend. While it is not a unnamed path event, we are hosting it and all are welcome. And we have some trans men that are going to be attending. And uh, so, you know, it's, it is a men who love men event. And we use the same criteria for admission in that regard. I also think men who love men, it would also seem to indicate that even someone who identifies as straight, because it's not men who have sex with men, it's men who love men, which is a whole other category. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, if you say men who have sex with men, you start getting into the labels that like um, sex health professionals use. You know what I'm saying? And it starts to get a little clinical. So that's the main reason we didn't use that. But there is absolutely a sexual element to our gods. And if you cannot have sex with another man, you're not going to be able to connect to the sacred sexual loving nature of our gods. So you're going to miss out. You know what I'm saying? It's like, could you philosophically study? I guess. But it's going to get to a point when you're not going to get to experience that divine connection. Again, remember, it's seeing the gods reflected in you and you reflected in the gods. If you don't have sex with men, then you're not being reflected in the gods. Right? Makes sense to me. And um, you mentioned that so the four, the four paths, uh, the four paths of the name path and... <laughs> One of them is uh, magic and prophecy. And since we're right. the divination show, how does that prophecy, ele- magic and prophecy element sort of work in the unnamed path? That's a good question. Um, magic and prophecy go hand in hand. Magic is, of course, taking your will and using it to change the world around you, you know, making your goals happen using magical means. And prophecy is almost like the forecasting in order to find out what factors are affecting the situation so you better know how to target your magic, as well as how will this spell turn out. Divination before incantation? Divination before incantation and maybe even afterwards, you know, just sort of like let's make sure that we launched the rocket in the right direction, you know. And and so it's very useful and they very much go hand in hand. Now, our prophecy um, takes many forms. There is divination, which would use like a random tool like shuffling cards or the throwing of runes or something like that. Um, We also have what we um, what we call um, seership, which is doing prophecy work without tools. This is where you rely on the relationships you have with your gods and goddesses, with the um, guides that you have with your ancestors, even with your um, totem animals and so forth. And you enter into a shamanic state of altered consciousness in order to fetch the information um, that is the response to the questions people ask. And seership is really intense. All of our initiates, anyone who's been initiated uh, in the unnamed path can do it. It's part of our training. Um, But it's pretty cool because you plug in in such a way that you don't, you could just push your cards aside and just boom, start answering da, 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 and responding exactly what the ancestors are saying, what the gods are saying. And you can tell people where the answer is coming from, which is really great. My totem animals went and fetched this answer and they say, you need to do X, Y, and Z for this reason. Or my ancestor, my grandma says that you need to go look for a job in such and such place, you know? And so that way, 
you don't just get a psychic's word for it. You actually can say, well, you know, your grandma may be a nice lady, but I really don't want to take her advice. You know, you get <laughs> you get you get another layer of, of meaning in there. Um, we also do scrying, you know, which is sort of like somewhere between the two. You use a tool as a way to unfocus your gaze so that you can then receive inspiration from your guides and, and ancestors. So those are our primary methods of prophecy in the unnamed path. We also, of course, um, we are a possessory path. So our gods and goddesses can possess initiates. And if, if they're in the body of an initiate, then you're getting direct prophecy straight from the, straight from the you know, mouth of the gods and goddesses. And if somebody was interested in pursuing studying this path, but they thought that they don't have any skill or gift for doing divination and that kind of thing. It, do you feel that's something that can be taught to them? They don't have to worry about, well, I don't have that gift, so I guess I can't really follow this path because that's not going to be a part of it I can do. Right. Absolutely, they can study with us. As a matter of fact, we train you on how to be the best diviner you can be, how to be the best seer you can be. I mean, it's kind of like um, I, I went to school in college for uh, for art. And I'll be the first person to say when I went to art school, I couldn't draw to save my life. But when I got out of art school, I can draw and I can draw very well. And so it's the same kind of way. I take the same sort of philosophy. You know, you're, you're signing up for shaman school and you have to learn how to use our tools. I expect people to show up uh, for classes and not know a single thing and am willing to answer the most basic of questions so that people have a really firm foundation. And of course, the challenge is if you do know a lot of information as a student, you have to go into that sort of um, that empty bowl philosophy of approach to education where I've got to empty out all of my previous knowledge and be receptive to learning things new because this style may be different than what I learned before and who knows, it may work better. Step, so, step back to beginner's mind. Step back to beginner's mind. That's right. Exactly. Um, and so in in the years that you've been now teaching this and offering mm -hmm. this tradition along, what might be one thing you've seen, if you, just as a tip to people listening that think they would like to perhaps pursue magic, prophecy, divination, etc., what do you think is one thing you've seen that has always been a stumbling block uh, yes. and how people can start to get beyond that. Right. I think the most common obstacle I see people run into is self-doubt. You know, when they're first learning how to read cards, they're like, I know what that card means, but I, I doubt myself, and I don't know if I'm getting the right information. Or someone will go on a shamanic journey and come back and say, well, how do I know if it was real and I wasn't just making it up? You know, it's a very common, a very common question. And I always tell people, you know, when you enter into the realm of self-doubt, what you're doing is you're making a statement to the gods, to the guides, the ancestors, to the universe, to all, that you are disconnected from the divine, that you are not able to do this. You're basically saying, I'm separate from all that other stuff. And unless I am that other stuff, I am somehow not legit and not okay. And that's, that's a blasphemy. I tell people that that, that is a, blasph a blasphemous statement. And you really have to instead move into a place of hope and a place of trust and a place of spiritual vulnerability enough to say, I'm going to take a risk and say the image that's coming to my mind. And I'm going to just put it out there and tell you everything I saw in my shamanic journey. Even if I think it sounds a little out there, I'm going to just say it, okay, without judgment. And those times where you move into that, that uh, mind of innocence and into that place of trust and report things purely devoid of any kind of self-doubt, 
That's when you start becoming a phenomenal diviner or an amazing prophet or whatever it happens to be. It's casting off the mantle of self-doubt. Very cool. That's, that's the heart. I don't know, that, that self-doubt part for any kind of scrying or any kind of intuitive. Uh, for me, it was always the, just the, 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 the feeling that, oh, man, I'm making this up. You know, mm-hmm. is, this, is this in my head? And you're like, yes, and. Right. <laughs> but right. that's the hardest part for me. Right. And, um, and as shamans, when we do shamanic journey work, you see some pretty fantastical stuff. I mean, we've got one brother that gets to see shamanic journeys with Star Wars characters in them. Okay, Ooh, but let me tell you, before. his right, his shamanic journeys are the most powerful ones. And we, and we tell our students early on, you know, whenever you're doing shamanic journey work, your guides are going to use whatever visual language is in your mind, whatever is significant for you. If you are really into Japanese anime, you are going to be seeing Japanese anime characters in your shamanic journeys because they represent things for your psyche and for your spirit, just like you know, Star Wars means a lot to our brother. When he gets his shamanic journeys and we read them, you know, if you were not a shaman and reading it, you'd go, what the heck? But if you understand the context for him and what it represents, they're some of the most powerful, amazing 3D IMAX surround sound kind of shamanic <laughs> journeys. They're amazing, you know? Wow. So, so you have to kind of learn that when you move into the shamanic realm of revelatory experience, there is... Um, there's a certain amount of absurdity that's part of the equation. And you learn mm. to embrace it. Instead of needing everything to be black and white or hard line, you're, you're willing to be flexible and go, okay, well, let me explore it. And let me accept it for now. And then I'll test the spirit just to make sure that, you know, I'm not out of my mind. But I'm going to, I'm going to trust that the process is working. Very you know, shamanic journeys in 3D and IMAX are so old tradition. I'm now moving towards 4K shamanic journeys. 4K, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Smell-o-vision, smell-o-vision shamanic journey. Smell-o-vision, that's right. Well, you have to put on your glasses before the shamanic journey. Um, so of the four paths, I don't know about anyone else, but the, the, the one that made me pause the most also probably seems like something we should cover in this October episode um since this is the time of ghosts and spirits can you what is death walking death walking yes it was it i purposefully gave it a spooky name (laughs) i will be i will own i mean i'm glad you did because there's i think Um, like the world of mediumship has become very like um i'm sure she's great but during virtue you know okay with her angel cards bless her heart but here's the thing it's uh Death walking, the name death walking is a name that refers to the relationship that the medium has with the force of death. Okay, not only are we mediums, but we actually walk with death as a force, meaning that you have a healthier relationship with it. You're not scared of it. You're not freaked out by the fact that death is a part of life. You know, I know, I know a lot of pagans say, oh, death is a part of life and death and rebirth. And, you know, and, every, and the talk is great. But then when the chips are down and somebody's dying in front of them, they start freaking out. You know, a death walker, we actually encourage people who want to study death walking to go and work in um, hospitals or hospice care where people are actively dying and you can give them a a death with dignity where you can sit by their side, listen to their regrets, listen to their hopes, make them feel like they're not disposable, you know, let them understand that they're important and walk them through the death process. And then once they've died, actually communicate with them on the other side and continue to counsel them through the confusion that they're experiencing as they lose their body. 
Okay. And so that's why we call it death walking. It's not just mediumship. It's more than that. Now we do talk to spirits of the dead, but, um, midwiving the dying is one of the big roles of a death walker and being able to help someone through the, the transition of death. Okay. It's just as sacred of a transition as birth. Right. So <clears throat> that's what death walking is. It's communicating with spirits of the dead and helping people through their dying process in a spiritual context. And so we do, um, we do have a, a holiday that we throw uh, once a year called the Circle of Bones, which we actually did a Circle of Bones ceremony at Pantheacon this year in 2013. And it was really powerful. It was really an amazing experience to sit up there with five other Death Walkers and work in this role of mediumship to allow the spirits of the dead to communicate, to allow the living to receive their messages as well as transmit their messages to the dead. And to give them an agency through which they could make their peace with one another. And, um, you know, normally we, we, we hold this ceremony in the round, like we all sit in a circle. And I'm going to try to do that for 2014, if Pantheocon will have us back. Um, but this year, because of the volume of people we had, we had to set it up like rows. And it almost became like a church setting. We had people processing up the center aisle on their knees almost as if they were making a pilgrimage to a holy site. It was one of the most powerful and humbling experiences I've ever been through that I had to really just like check my ego, set it aside and just be a really clear channel and don't allow what's happening right now in the room to deter me from being a clear uh, mouthpiece for the dead. And it was, it was so challenging because I wanted to cry and I'm like, no, 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 no. I've got to focus on what I'm doing. I've got to stay here and now. And, um, and it was really powerful. But that's that's like sort of a formalized ceremony that we do. It's the circle of bones. But we also do smaller spirit contact circles or seances, if you will, as needed throughout the year. It's um it's we teach our, our brothers how to communicate with the dead. Uh and I think most men who love men will find with a little bit of training that you have quite an act for it. And you use the term ancestors a lot. Can you maybe speak a little bit about what that means for you in this tradition when you refer to ancestors. Right. Well, we as men who love men have two ancestral streams. We have our ancestors of blood, which were the people that gave birth to us, you know, or if you're adopted, I actually count your adoptive family in the ancestors of blood because you both ate the same food. You were raised together. You know, I consider that blood ancestry. Um, but then we have a second ancestry, and that's what I call the ancestry of heart. These are um, spirits of men who love men who went before us. Okay, this is a tribe that we belong to, a family that we belong to beyond our blood family because we all loved the same. We share similar perspectives on life by having experienced life through the same lens of men loving men. Um, some of them are mighty ancestors that went before uh, men who of great artistry or great courage or great leadership. And um, when we say ancestors of men who love men with a capital A, we're talking about the mighty dead who were men who loved men. These are, like I said, men who are phenomenal leaders, who are uh, powerful artists, poets, um, who were uh, fierce warriors, people who fought for our rights. Um, these are like our the heads of our spiritual tribe in the spirit world. And they're accessible by all men who love men, and they're there to support us. And they're the ones who awakened the unnamed path in me. They awakened the path in other men as well at the same time, by the way. I, I'm not the sole owner of this. I'm not like some kind of divine prophet. There are other men on the earth who were receiving the same information at the same time I was. They just didn't do anything with it. 
you know, I, I ran with it. I, I'm, I'm an ambitious Capricorn. I ran with it. They, they didn't. They just kind of used it for their own personal work and left it at that. But that's what I talk about when I'm talking about ancestors with a capital A of men who love men. It's those people. And ancestors in the general term with the lowercase a, it's the stream of blood and the stream of heart that emanates out of each of us in terms of backward dead people. I was at a ritual a while ago that was um, LGBT oriented. Mm -hmm. And one of the phrases they used, which I really liked, was they said, um, we all walk along the road that's made of the bones of those that came before us. Absolutely. And it was to remind us to make sure that we both honor and respect that and remember that at all times. Because I think that we do in our community, as well as society in general, tend to forget about who came before to set the stage for what we may now be able to be enjoying. Right. Um, and that's kind of a neglect of ancestor worship that is so prevalent in many other cultures, but mm -hmm. we really neglect in ours. And I think part of that is because we have a, a fear of death in our true. culture. That's and true. so if someone was hearing this, and I think a lot of people would be held back from wanting to pursue this because of their own fear of going there. Charlie and I spoke at a little, um, what was really a conference? It's like a monthly thing. Mm -hmm. um, gathering. And there was a woman there that does shamanic work, and she had gotten, she was relaying a story that she had gotten a call or something from somebody about um, doing some connection with the dead and that kind of thing. And she was sending that person someplace else because she says, I don't really deal in the death realm. Mm -hmm. Which I thought, well, my goodness, that seems like such a natural part of the shamanic work. That, <laughs> but right. anyway, um, right. so, and so, what would you suggest to people if they feel a fear or a hesitance or a reticence about going into that realm? Well, it's just like anything else. Uh, whenever you experience fear regarding something, it's because there's some power to be attained on the other side of that fear. There's always something there that's intimidating and yet at the same time tantalizing. And um, <clears throat> whether it's an understanding and a knowledge that 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 w which is what on what's on the other side of that fear is just not you. You know, it's not part of me. The power you get is a firmer understanding of self coming out of it. Um, I always tell people, go with somebody who is trained, who, who knows what they're doing, that is a qualified death walker, and experience it before you cast judgment. And I think most people will go into it a little timid, a little concerned, a little afraid. Like you said, because our society is very youth-oriented, it's very life-oriented. We are a young country and a young society that's all about youth. And, I mean, even living seniors are forgotten by our society, okay, let alone dead people. Um, you see all kinds of ads to, let's help the children, and what about the children? And everyone forgets about seniors, okay? So it's the same kind of thing. We want to deny our mortality. We are scared of it. But in the process, we have an unhealthy relationship with it. We have a fetishized relationship with the force of death. And doing death walking work going through the experience of talking to spirits of the dead and receiving a, a, a message from the dead that you just cannot deny came from somebody that you know was dead is a very healing experience because then you realize, oh, wait a minute. Death is not finality. Death is not an end. Death is not silence. You know, and, and you start to heal the relationship you have with death and you don't fear it as much. 
And then you suddenly start to take appreciation for things like life and aging and how important it is for us to support our elders and seniors. And, you know, you, you, you get a whole new perspective on time itself in addition to what it does to our bodies. So I tell people, look at what it is that you truly fear. Okay. Typically it's your own mortality. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is cultural. And then I say, go with somebody who's trained and experience it before with an open mind before you cast aspersions. And I think you'll come away from it really, um, with your mind open. It's kind of like sushi. A lot of people are scared of it. And then once they have it, they realize, wow, that's really great stuff. So, you know, <laughs> it's funny <laughs> it, because even in the, you know, in the very open-minded world of divination in the new age, it's still so potent. We were talking with Chaz Bogan, who makes a uh, Ouija style talking boards. And you'll, you'll hear people who love tarot, love astrology, pendulums, but they'll tell you some twisted story about when they used a Ouija board when they were 12 and the planchette flew across the room. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's a planchette flying across my room right now. Woo! They're here. Some of that is, um, is sort of what we inherited from a Western European culture where the dead were largely something to be feared and respected. And see, I am Cuban. My, my family came to the United States in 61 and I was born here. Um, and Cuba is much more intimately tied to African aspects of culture. And uh, because there's such a huge you know, population of people that were brought in the slave trade to the Caribbean islands. And so there, the, the West African perspective on the dead is very different. The dead are friendly. The dead are allies. The dead are people to honor and remember, and they will in turn support you. And so I think I, I inherited a little bit of that perspective toward the dead, which made it much more comfortable for me to at least approach these arts and then investigate for myself. And then I was like, wait a minute. Oh, there's really something here. There really is something here. So it's, it's the common cultural divide between the, the friendly dead versus the dead to be feared of. And I think as, as Europeans, we, you know, many of us inherited that dead to be feared of culture. And that's what permeates a lot of modern paganism. Because let's face it, modern paganism in the United States is very Eurocentric. It really is. And it took a big hit in the 70s from the New Age white light movement. And I think we've been focused on light for so long that we kind of blinded ourselves to the darkness. And now the darkness is starting to become this nagging thing in the back of our mind that we have to address as a community, as diviners as well. We need to be willing to look at the shadow aspect of what we do. Um, you know, just because the tower card falls doesn't mean that it's going to be a terrible, horrible experience for everyone because that bolt of lightning that comes out of the sky to destroy the tower is the bolt of lightning of God's truth dismantling the illusions that we've created. So does it suck? Yeah. Is it painful? Yeah. But out of the darkness comes light. So, you know, it's just you have to recognize both halves of the equation, life and death, light and dark. And when you use the term dark, just to clarify for people, that's not anything to do with dark, meaning the bad side of things, the evil side of things, or even the negative side of things. It's just the opposite of the light. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back two steps further and say labeling things and good and bad is something that stops dialogue. Th those, are, those are value judgments instead of statements of fact. And so, you know, it, for example, um, is a tiger bad? Well, you know, it's got giant teeth and it kills a lot of things and it could kill me and it's scary. And, you know, is it bad? Is it good? It just is. 
You know, and I think if we were to embrace a more nature-oriented look at the world itself, we wouldn't place value judgments of good and bad on things. Things just are. So dark is that which is not light, is that which is absence, is that which is lack, is that which is, um, there is fear in, in darkness, you know, love would be light and dark would be fear. Fear isn't necessarily bad. Fear can save your life, right? That rush of adrenaline and fear can be the very thing that makes you jump out of the way of an oncoming bus. In that case, fear was good. It saved you, you know? So I, I, I tend to shy away from discussions of good and bad. And I tend to look at things like, let's see them. Are they light? Are they dark? Is it manifest? Is it potential? You know, what is it? And I think that leaves you more room to have an honest dialogue that leads towards ultimate spiritual discovery. Right. It's just that I think people in our society, even if it's just by osmosis, when they hear like dark God, they would start to associate that with devil versus light God. And so it was just to clarify that's that's nothing to do with how you're using that terminology. Mm. Right. It's not Satan. No, mm-hmm. so I, I have no interest in Satan. Satan is a human cop-out for human shortcomings. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what it is. Satan is a poster boy for all of the negative aspects that are part of humanity that we don't want to look at. Things like our, you know, being a selfish jerk and not caring about other people and hurting people. You know, Again, I tend not to talk about things as good and bad, but you know, is the dark of Satan? No, he's not. He's not. <laughs> but there is darkness. But there is darkness within the dark god that can be seen within us. That is part of our nature as being animals. That if we take an open, honest look at, instead of immediately labeling it as something bad and running away from it, that we might discover some truth about ourselves. Very cool. Now, if someone, because the time of the year was a little bit curious uh, about doing some beginner level death walking, just like getting a taste for it. Do you have any recommendations that they can begin their process? I'm going to give you a simple little ceremony that anybody can do. Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying you need to go to the grave of somebody that you loved. Okay. If you don't have a graveyard nearby of somebody you loved, I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm not going to give you anything more advanced, but I'll give you this. Go to the graveyard and visit somebody that you love that, that's buried there. It can be a relative. It can be a deceased uh, wife or husband or lover. It could be a, um, a deceased pet, frankly. It could be anything. When you get to the gate of the ceremony, make a small offering of three pennies. This is an offering made to the spirits of the land that guard that place. Okay, that's all it is. It is saying, please allow me access to the sacred place so that I can come and go and not take a bunch of extra crap with me. Okay, it's it's a a statement of of honor and respect. So you just leave the three pennies right there as you walk in. Seek the grave of your deceased loved one. Bring flowers, maybe bring um, a glass encased candle so it's a little safer. Um, If you feel so inclined and you want to offer a libation to the deceased, you could bring their favorite beverage, maybe a little flask of whiskey or just some fresh, cool water, um, something like that. And what you want to do is <clears throat> you want to go up to their headstone, clean the headstone off, okay? That, that right there is an act of um, sacrifice and saying, you know, I'm respecting you. I want your memory to be clear. I want to show you that I'm doing what I can to tend to you when your physical body isn't here, okay? L- hold the flowers in your hand, hold the drink in your hand, and sit on the grave, okay? Take a few deep, calm, cleansing breaths. 
and allow waves of relaxation to go from your head down to your feet. And then call out the name of your loved one three times and say, I, state your name, am here to visit you, to pay you honor and respect, and to have some time with you. And then just speak to them from your heart. Now, you don't have to speak out loud. You can use your inner voice for this. But talk to them about what's troubling you, about what may be on your mind, um, about anything like that. And then when you're done talking, sit quietly and listen. And you will receive messages back. Okay, You will receive impressions that come to your mind, images, ideas that pop in your head. Don't disregard them because this is where that self-doubt comes in. You're like, oh, I just I made that up or oh, I'm, I'm just my mind is wandering and I'm worrying about leaving the iron on before I left the house. You know, don't let don't dismiss that stuff. Just allow it to come to your mind without judgment and just take note of it. Um, when you're done listening and perceiving, place the uh, flowers on the gravestone. Take the beverage and pour it out on the earth on top of the grave and say, I, I offer this to you as an offering of thanks to cool and refresh your spirits. Cap it off. Um, give them your love and say your farewell. And then take three steps backward away from the grave, turn around and leave. And on your way out, what I like to do is I like to either stamp my foot three times or knock on the door three times or something like that and say, one day I'll be back, but today is not that day. And then go home. And I usually go home by a different route, just in case I decided to pick up a straggler that wanted to come with me. And, you know, I'll lose them on the route home by taking a different route. Okay? That is a very simple act that you can do as a death walker to communicate with your loved ones, to show them respect and reverence, and to get their support, especially if you come to them with an issue, like you're trying to get a job or get a new apartment or patch up a relationship. You can go to them for advice and help. And they will support you. And the more you go and the more that you tend to that relationship and take care of your spirits of your deceased, the more they will be there for you so that you don't even have to go to the cemetery anymore. You can be at home cooking dinner and you reach out to grandma with your mind and she's there talking to you and helping you and assisting you. She may come to you in dreams. You know, it's, it's one of those things that as you develop the relationship, they're always there for you, ready to help you. And there are... Um, some traditions that think that this time of year, especially the end of October, October 31st, um, is a time when the, the veil is thinnest, when it's most easy to connect with the spirit realm. Do you feel that that applies? I mean, do you feel that this time of year is good for that too? And maybe that would be a good time for somebody to try doing this? Or are there particular times like full moon or something that you think would be particularly um, conducive to somebody trying this? Right. Um, if it's uh, if you're just starting out, I find that practicing death walking when the leaves in your environment are starting to fall is best. Okay? So that way it really depends on where you live. Like here in Southern California, our leaves are barely starting to turn color. If you go further north, I'm sure they're already like in full color change and, and going to drop any minute. Um so it depends on your environment. I'd say look at your environment. Or if there is a lot of death sweeping the land. That's information I've received in a shamanic journey. So let's say that it's hunting season or something like that, right? There's a lot of death sweeping the land. Or God forbid, if there's an ab- a big dis- – or yeah, wabbit season. God forbid there's a big um, natural disaster and a lot of people are dying. That is a good time for you to do death walking because – 
naturally souls of the dead are seeking rest. They're trying to make their way into the underworld and you can help them in the process. And I, I do think, you know, I hearken back to my old days as a Wiccan, and I do think that this time of year that the veil between the living and the dead really is quite thin. And for folks in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, it would be the opposite time of year, you know, beginning of May, um, same kind of thing. It just really depends on your environment. I've also heard that this time of year, October 31st, for us on the in this hemisphere, October 31st is when it's easiest for the spirit realm to come and access our side, mm-hmm. and that, um, well, May Day or the beginning of May is when it's easiest for us to connect with that side. Right. I'd agree with that, especially considering that in the underworld, I think things are a little reflected. So, like, when it's daytime here, it's nighttime there, which is why nighttime is such a good time to contact spirits of the dead because they're awake in the underworld. It's, it's you know, daytime there. Um, similarly, when it's sow in here, it's Beltane over there, right? Because think about it. Whenever a soul dies here in the physical world, a ghost or spirit is born in the spirit world. It's their Beltane. It's their time for reproduction, Right, And where Beltane here, everything is being born to new life, those are souls of the dead that are reincarnating and taking physical form. So Beltane here in the physical world is Samhain in the land of the dead. Right. So that makes sense. So if someone was interested or intrigued by the Unnamed Path, first of all, we will let them know. They can always go to unnamedpath.com yep. to find out more information. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of two questions around this for you um, to kind of move towards closing out our conversation. Um, First of all, if someone was intrigued but waiting for a sign that it was the right thing for them to do, Mm -hmm. what would you suggest for them to look out for that would be indicative that it is a sign or a calling or something drawing them that is coming specifically from the light slash dark god and or goddess for this particular path? That's a hard one because I think signs are very individual and they're very personal. Again, they talk to your visual language and what speaks to you. But, you know, some of the hallmarks of of the dark god, for example, if you see a horny guy, you know, a guy with horns on his head, that's pretty much his, you know, his symbol. Um, That's him coming forward, especially if you dream of, uh, you know, hot guy with horns on his head coming to make love to you in the middle of the night might just be him. Um, the dark goddess and the dark god are very prone to reach out to people more so than the light goddess or light god. They're very detached from the individual experience, while the dark ones are very invested in the individual experience. Uh, the dark goddess tends to talk to people in um, dreams about things like spiders, uh, dreams about um, old women where you can't see her face. That's very common as well. Um, or if you find yourself in a spiritual path where you're not seeing your own natural men who love men rhythm being reflected in that path and you're starting to question and seek, that's, that's all it took for me to find my way on the path. So it could be that as well. And people don't have to be in physical proximity to you to, to start right. doing this path because you teach from distance as well, correct? Right. That's one of the cool things. Modern era, we uh, we actually hold our classes using Google Hangouts or Skype, depending on the teacher. And, um, you know, we pick a mutually agreeable time amongst all the students that want to participate. And then we start the class. And the class is typically a year-long apprenticeship. 
Um, each class uh, meets about every other week, and the lessons themselves are like two hours long. We currently have five teachers that are teaching at any given moment, um, and we announce when classes are available or starting up, um, either on our Facebook page, where you can search for the Unnamed Path on Facebook, um, or on our website at unnamedpath.com. Um, and we also have a Google Plus page, although there's not as much traffic on it as with most things Google Plus. Um, we do have a Yahoo group, but we're going to be transitioning away from that because Yahoo groups are having problems right now. Um, but your best bet is going to be Facebook or the unnamedpath.com website. And also, if you want to listen to the podcast, you can actually search for the unnamed path on iTunes, and it's available for free for download. We've got over 70 episodes to entertain you in the process. It's a fabulous, fabulous podcast, and it was one of my big inspirations uh, to ever produce a podcast when I started listening to it about four years ago, so well oh. done on you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, I was also going to say it's a really great um, series of podcasts to listen to as really a good introduction and foundation to what the unnamed path is about and would probably really help somebody understand it better, as well as to really figure out whether it sounds like it's something that is for them to pursue. Right, yeah, because it's complicated. <laughs> you know, I had to record 70 episodes to get the bulk of it out. So, yeah, it's, it's complicated. So, I think with with that, we will both encourage people that are feeling pulled or intrigued by what they've heard tonight to check out the website at unnamedpath.com and perhaps consider pursuing studying that path a bit um, if it feels right to them. And we will say thank you to Hyperion for being willing to join us this evening. Um, we are recording this just a little bit before the show airs, and that is because, as was mentioned earlier, he has the inaugural Stone and Stang retreat coming up this weekend, right. which is the weekend right before the show airs. So yep. we also want to wish you much luck with that. Um, I've looked at the programming and stuff, and I think it sounds like it's going to be uh, quite an amazing weekend, despite the little bumps that have to be gotten over for anything inaugural. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And, and thank you for the you know the good wishes for that weekend. And thank you for having me on. It's been a real treat to chat with both of you and uh, to be able to talk about something that's really dear to my heart and that has really transform the lives of, of many, many, many men that we've taught and trained in those traditions. So thank you again. And probably that's a key thing. If somebody is called to this path, be prepared to be transformed in your life. Don't go into it lightly. Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you very much for having been here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Divination with a Queer Twist with hosts High C and Charlie Harrington on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. And we are back. High C, are you there with me? And we are back. Sorry, I had to hit oh, the mute button. <laughs> I'm just talking oh, that's away. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've done that. 
so um, very strange. I haven't listened to that recording since we recorded it, actually, uh, when he was still with us. And it was so strange. So much of the uh, talk is about death and uh, death walking and communication with the dead. And his very, I thought, very healthy attitude about um, communication with with ancestors and, and working with ancestors without fear. So that was a little... Got a little verklempt hearing that, actually. And a a good little primer, because now he is an ancestor, so it's not that he's not reachable. We just have to employ some slightly different ways of communicating and getting in touch and still getting the wisdom and guidance and everything that he offered, even when he was alive here. Um, I know that the people in the Unnamed Path have often mentioned that, that he is been very present for them and still continues to kind of lead and guide them so mm-hmm. so wow so we we move on from that to those of us still here continuing to needing to push through and and live in the coming month mm-hmm. which which we will get a little guidance about in our Living the Queer Life segment that we normally do at this point in the show. Excellent. And um, I pulled a card with the uh, the Unnamed Brotherhood in mind. I pulled a card from the Gods and Titans Oracle. Uh, Oracle, rather. It's uh, an Australian deck and it's uh, a lot of lovely guys in it. If you're ever looking for the, uh, the Oral deck with the most uh, hunk <laughs> quotients <laughs> in it, um, uh, if knights and kings aren't doing for you, this is the the one. And I it got an interesting card, uh, which is uh, so each card is a god or heroic figure from different world mythologies. And the one I got was Bayame. Uh, he's an Australian Aboriginal divinity. Um, it's probably Bayame, you know, might be how it might be pronounced. <laughs> but I apologize to Australians. Um, he is the god of beauty, and it's interesting. He's depicted as a a male being with large eyes and no mouth, and um, that that comes into my interpretation of it a bit. But um, the uh, uh, the accompanying book recommends uh, going out and experiencing the beauty of nature. Um, Biome is a creator deity. So one of his important jobs was creating um, Australia, which was the known world at that time for his people, and um, all of the the water uh, features, the all the land features of Australia, and um, there is a reverence for the beauty of nature as it is in um, Australian uh, Aboriginal spirituality or spiritual thinking. So my recommendation for you, dear listener, um, at this, well, whenever you're hearing this, but when, when I'm recording it, it's January and a lot of people are making resolutions. And it is wonderful to make resolutions about uh, health <laughs> and exercise and beauty um, that you want to uh, have happen for you. But... It's very important to be able to step outside of yourself and see yourself 
beautiful as you are. And um, as a reminder, Bayomé has no mouth. So my my interpretation of that, my uh, West Coast <laughs> American interpretation of that, uh, do not you don't need to explain to anyone, including and maybe even especially yourself, uh, about why you're beautiful. You don't have to um, convince yourself or anyone else. You don't have to talk yourself into it. It's about just regarding yourself as be- as beautiful as you are, having accomplished what you've accomplished at this time. So I think a lot of us see ourselves as sort of almost there or almost finished in some ways, and um, you're finished. You're you're there. You're you're great as you are. And then also um, to when you're getting caught up in world political philosophies and and and, and constructs. It's healthy, very, very healthy to refresh yourself by experiencing the beauty of nature as it is. Going to a place that um, has trees and plants (laughs) happening at random, (laughs) happening wherever nature put them, and seeing animals and and seeing plants in their natural setting and seeing that as beautiful and whole. And um, I think a lot of spiritual and progressive folks can get themselves down about the world situation, about the human civilization situation. So Bayame uh, would say, stop talking, stop convincing other people or yourself, and see yourself and see nature as beautiful exactly as it is. And it strikes me something you said, that it was about the beauty of the land as it is, which maybe mm-hmm. we could say the beauty of the world as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems appropriate because we think when someone dies and they're young and it's like, you know, grief is not pretty and, and how you know, that's not a, a good thing. And it seems like an unnatural thing. And this seems to be a reminder to also perhaps just find and respect the beauty in whatever the reason and order of that of the world is that has that as a part of it rather than shutting down shutting off and not being able to find that and then just holding on to grief to anger at whoever you might be angry at for these kind of things and that kind of thing so that struck me when you said that Um, And I also wanted to say that because I think also the card that came up for me seems very appropriate for, you know, um, playing the interview with Hyperion today as well as looking forward to the month because the card that I got, which I'm actually using a new deck that I have called the Japaridze Tarot, uh, who was an artist. How do you spell that? (laughs) J-A-P-A-R-I-D-Z-E. Um, and he's like a, a surrealist artist. Um, so it's a very interesting deck. Ooh, okay. um, and so the card that came up is the Four of Wands here, the Four of Fire. And, you know, that's a card that is about being jubilant and, and, and celebrating something and people coming together. And it struck me as very appropriate for today because it was mm-hmm. a sense, I mean, they had the memorial down south, but it, it's it's a sense that 
people are a lot of people are remembering today for Hyperion and there's a sense of getting to that point after a year where you can start to really celebrate and and enjoy what was able to be had by having known Hyperion or or anyone if somebody has had someone die um but having known them in your life rather than being so caught up in the loss uh, the the 4 of wands here seems to remind us as we go through the month um not to forget to stop and recognize what we have to celebrate to acknowledge those things that can bring us together um it's you know it it encourages us to make time to i guess celebrate the smaller accomplishments um don't wait until the the final goal the end destination has been reached to have the celebration celebrate along the way because you know sometimes we don't know maybe we'll never get to the end goal and why would we want to miss out on a chance to have acknowledged celebrated and enjoyed what it is that we did accomplish rather than not having had that and then not getting to the end and then never having the chance to remember to just have a good time <laughs> once in a while rather than be so serious about everything. Um, it's also, um, it is a card of marriage very traditionally um, or people coming together for a reunion of some sort or a gathering or a, a celebration like the birth of a child or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this this would encourage people in the coming month, if you um, find uh, yourself receiving an invitation to something like that, it encourages you to take advantage of that. Be around other people. Be in um, situations where people are coming together to celebrate, to have a good time, to kind of put the the day-to-day world to the side and just enjoy themselves. Um, and you know and and that also speaks i was thinking of the four of wands as a card of participation and so it's it's asking us to participate in the celebration and joy of life it's asking us to participate in group activities and be a part of things rather than standing off from them or not really giving ourselves over to them so that's what i would encourage people to do in the coming month uh is Find opportunities to be with other people, participate in the revelry, um, and participate in the process. Because not only will you find that you enjoy it, but you'll also find that a, a sense of connection, a sense of community will develop. And people will be there for each other to help move something along or make it bigger than what it could be if we try to just keep doing it on our own. So that's what I would say with the Four of Wands for the coming month for people. Yeah, to me, the Four of Wands is the it's the party card, right? It's the it's the like, um, and often um, I tell people like now is now is a great time to celebrate what's going on. Like now is a now is a perfectly lovely time so, <laughs> to just just as things things as they are. So there's a there's a, a bit of uh, an acceptance of the way things is <laughs> going on right. in our our two cards. So it's kind of like don't don't wait for a birthday to have a celebration. You know, don't mm-hmm. wait till Christmas to give somebody a present. It's like mm-hmm. just do it. Enjoy the moment and and you know, be a part of just participating in the in life itself rather than trying to do it according to rules or this is the right time or the wrong time to do that kind of thing, you know. 
So absolutely, absolutely. So um, very cool, very cool pairing of the cards there. Yeah. So you're great. Go out and have fun. <laughs> um, interesting. And then one thing that came up while you were talking um, for me when you were describing the Four of Wands, I was reminded of so Eddie uh, or Hyperion had a particular uh, thing. He would talk about the ancestors, and he talked about R.I.P. He says uh, they they do not uh, they do not rest in peace; they rise in power. Oh yeah. So a lot of people, I think, in the unnamed path, or people who appreciated Hyperion's work, have a adopted the idea of rise in power. So, well, yes, and, and the, the store where I do readings, the Sacred Well in Oakland, they've actually created a, a candle line that mm. says rise in power with a label that has like a, a fist and all sorts of things. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's charged as a candle to be burned when you need to feel that sense of rising in power, rising up, standing up for and standing up against and that kind of thing. So, if if people are interested in that, they can certainly visit the website of the Sacred Well. They they, they um it's it's just sacredwell dot com, and they easy, they easy. you can you can purchase online. <laughs> <laughs> in your jammies while you're celebrating life. Yes. So <laughs> that's right. Oh, cool. That's the queer queer life. That's our advice to you. That's right, viewers, listeners. <laughs> so we will. Extend our gratitude to listeners for a little bit of indulgence, and hopefully they enjoyed and got something out of the interview hearing it again. Uh, and we were, well, I will speak for myself, I was happy to be able to have the opportunity to both know Hyperion uh, as well as to honor him on the day of his death or the day after um, by reminding people of the wisdom and the teachings and things that he had to share that don't go away just because the physical body did. And that will move us to the close of this month's show. Mm, it's been a real slice, <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we'll, we'll remind people we will be here again next month, second Tuesday of the month. Um, and so we hope that you will join us uh, again. Um, we promise that it won't be a, a replay. It'll be a, a new guest, a fresh guest, uh, fresh information, fresh guidance. So fresh we hope us. that you'll be there. That, that's right. There we go. Uh, which will be on February 10th, the second Tuesday. So thank you, Charlie, for being here once again, and welcome to 2015. Well, <laughs> let's just write, start writing that out on all of my checks. I know. Anyway, but it's been a pleasure, I see, and I'll talk to you very soon. All right, and thank you for listening. The Amethyst Oracle. Divination with a queer twist. Divination with a queer twist. The Amethyst Oracle. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carasella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lusney. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m.